our lives just get safer and safer. I was on a carpool as a small child and we went around the corner and the door flew open and I rolled out of the car across the ground and, and it was like not that big of a deal. He picked me up, he dusted me off, brought me home and he says to my mom, uh, look, I'm really sorry, Billy fell out of the car when I went around the corner. And I'm like, you know, five years old. And my mother's like, oh, no big deal. He looks fine. Don't worry about it. You know, it's just, we lived in a world, even just 50 years ago, that's a lot more dangerous than it is now. But, and we've gotten so much safer, you'd think that that would be an unmitigated good. But it turns out that um, we evolved also to seek out risk under certain circumstances. G'day, I'm Richard Harris, and thanks for joining me on Real Risk, the adventure podcast. G'day, and welcome back to season two of Real Risk, the adventure podcast. Fantastic to be here for another go around, another 12 guests over the next 12 weeks. Uh, the first season has been uh, a great success. I've really enjoyed doing it and I've had lots of positive feedback. Thank you very much for all your emails and all your suggestions. Lots of interesting guests have been proposed to me and I've followed quite a few of them up and I can assure you of some really interesting interviews to come up over the next few months. I'm proud again to state that Bramont, the UK watch manufacturer, has joined me as sponsor for Series 2 of Real Risk. That's very, very welcome, and I'm a proud ambassador of Bramont. I wear the Supermarine 2000, beautiful dive watch, which is 2,000 metre depth capable. Uh, that's quite a few more metres than I am capable, so I'm sure that will look after me very well, and it uh, keeps fantastic time, a mechanical watch and a beautiful timepiece. If you're interested in Bramont watches, have a look at their website. They are a really interesting company uh, started up by a couple of brothers who are aviators and engineers, and they make beautiful watches. So thanks again to Bramont. Uh, the website is up and, and running now, realriskpodcast.com. So you can find the podcast there and also some uh, interesting photos and more information about the guests. I'll be continuing with the book giveaway every month. And for July, Mitch Barry, who was kind enough to say in his email that I was not a flog, which is a very kind thing to say. But no, thank you, Mitch, for your email. And uh, a book will be coming out to you if you haven't got it already. Now, today's guest, Professor Bill von Hippel, is a psychologist uh, specializing in evolutionary psychology. He's an American, but he now lives and resides in Queensland and is a professor at the University of Queensland. Bill joins me to talk about the psychology of risk. I thought that was a fantastic way to start the second series so we can begin to understand a little bit more about why adventurers and risk takers do what they do. Bill is a, a very widely published and very well-known, actually, uh, psychologist. He's, he's written over 100 peer-reviewed articles. He's featured in the New York Times, USA Today, and The Economist. He's a TED Talker and a regular podcast and interview guest. He's even been on the Joe Rogan Experience, the biggest podcast in the world. So he's no stranger to this format, and I found him an exceptionally interesting and articulate man to talk to about the subject of risk. Good morning, Bill, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Harris. Great to be here. Um, now, Bill, you're a professor of psychology at the University of Queensland, and you have a particular interest in evolutionary psychology. Uh, in mm -hmm. fact, you've authored a book called The Social Leap based around this, this field and this idea. Do you want to tell me a little bit about yourself and the sort of work that you do? Sure. So I'm a typical academic. I'm, I'm interested in, in my case and what makes people work. Like what sort of what are the social processes we engage in? What makes us a good leader or a poor leader? When are we innovative? All the kind of everyday stuff. And I spent the first, I'd say, 20 years of my career working on that problem just by studying how we are today. 
And eventually I became dissatisfied with that approach because the problem with it is that our theories would always end up, well, you do this because it makes you happy, or you do that because it helps you feel good about yourself. But they never answered the question, why does that make you feel happy? And why would that make you feel good about yourself? That was just the end point. And so I became very interested in evolutionary theory because that, of course, tells us where we came from. And then you can start to look at the pressures on our ancestors and the things that they did that made them successful, that made them live a long life and successfully raise their own children. Well, those are the kinds of things that our genes are going to encode as, well, that makes us happy. And so it doesn't make humans happy to eat dog crap because that's full of pathogens and dangerous for us. It does make us happy to eat a big donut because it's loaded with sugar and fat. And that's something that our ancestors were always seeking on the savanna. And so finally, when I started doing that work and, and took a deep dive into our evolutionary history, that I get start to get a sense of, well, that helps me understand why we want to do the things we do. And it can help broaden out the theories, lead to new hypotheses, et cetera. So that's basically the kind of work I do. I guess there's a huge amount of physical evidence perhaps in, in the scientific community about what we looked like and how we perhaps could have moved around the, the surface of the earth looking at skeletons and, and all that sort of stuff. But to actually extrapolate perhaps from that what we were thinking and how we were behaving, that that's a, a bit of a leap of faith. Well, right. It's both, right? So first of all, it's super interesting. I don't do that fundamental archaeology work myself, but I'm fascinated by it. And one of the things that I find most fascinating is exactly what you're talking about. How on earth could we know what our ancestors thought, what they were capable of, how they behaved? And it turns out that, that there's ways to answer that question. So, for example, one of my favorite answers or favorite um, studies that look at this is that if we go back to either if we go sideways to chimpanzees, which is six million years ago is when we sort of split from our chimpanzee cousins. And the way they are today, it's, it looks a lot like the way they were then. So we could look at chimpanzees as one comparison, but we could also look, rewind the tape and, and look back in time. And the question is, when did we gain the capacity to plan for the future? Like that's a super important human ability. Um, one that's tightly involved in risk-taking, right? Nobody, most people who take big risks take it very knowingly. They, they take it very planfully. And so when did we gain this capacity? Well, you can actually see evidence for that in the fossil record. And the way you see it is you look back and if we look at, for example, Oldowan tools, this is deep in the Stone Age, about 2.7 million years ago, they were invented. And they're these barely sharpened stones that Homo habilis or maybe even Australopithecus made. And when we look at those, we never once see any evidence that they've been carried any great distance from where they were quarried and made. But then when we fast forward to Acheulean tools, which were invented 1.7 million years ago by our Homo erectus ancestors, now for the first time, we see them carried great distances from where they're quarried and made. And what that suggests is that uh, Homo erectus ancestors could envision a world with unfelt needs. They could envision a world where now they've made this tool, they've used it, they don't need it anymore, but they could envision needing it again. The Homo habilis who made these earlier tools, they, could, they didn't have the mental wherewithal to be able to understand, oh, I'll, I'll want this again when I don't need it right now. We know, for example, chimpanzees can't do that. If, if they have a tool and they use it, when they're done with it, they throw it away, like they'll never need it again. And so there's some really cool evidence in the archaeological record for things like division of labor, planning, et cetera. It's still, as you point out, it's still an inference. We can't know with certainty just because it's a long way from where I was quarried that that's what they had in mind. But the data certainly suggests that. Uh, just to talk a little bit more about you, Bill, what, what do you do in your spare time and what's your attitude to personal risk? Um, so look, I, I'm not a very robust organism. And so with the risks that I take, 
I, I take in a very calculated way. So the, the two things that I really love to do that I think could be regarded as risky is I love alpine skiing and skiing really fast. Um, I grew up in Alaska, started skiing when I was four years old. So I have over 50 years of skiing under my belt. So I don't regard it as risk-taking when I'm skiing rapidly because I feel like I've got good control. But it was, it was really eye-opening to me when I realized that I don't regard it as risk-taking to go really fast because I feel under control when I started snowboarding. And once I'm on a snowboard, I don't have the same level of control. It was a sport that was only invented, you know, 30 years ago or so. And so as a consequence, especially when I was first starting to snowboard, I would feel like it's really scary and I'm going really fast. And then I'd realize I'm on the same trail that would bore me if I were on skis that I, it's not steep enough. And so the, what we, our mind is actually, it calculates things like speed in, in the context of not just, well, how physically fast am I going, but what's my level of control and my probability of falling? And that's when I came to realize, well, it's not really that I'm a risk taker. I like to go fast because I'm totally under control. When I'm not totally under control, I don't like to go fast at all. Um, and then I love to I love to rock climb. And so that's really my second um, activity that you could conceivably regard as risk-taking, but I, I never do it without ropes. Um, I even prefer to be in the gym so that if I fall, I'm on a mat. And uh, when I watch like Alex Honnold go up um, El Cap without ropes, even though I obviously know he lived, I've seen interviews with him when it was over, my heart still beats like crazy because I just feel like that's such a crazy risky thing to do. Yeah, well, I've watched both the Dawn Wall, which is Tommy Caldwell, obviously, who who I think it was the same route, essentially, that he, he climbed on rope with his climbing partner. And then I've watched Free Solo, which, as you say, is the same climb, it's the same kind of thing, but you know that safety net is not there. And when you see how often, both Alex when he's preparing, but guys like Tommy, how often they fall when they're, when they're setting up those routes, you know, you realise how, how risky it is without a rope. But I'm actually kind of reassured watching guys like Tommy do it on on rope because they fall, you know, a hundred times a session almost, and they land on their feet like cats, yeah. and yeah. they bounce off the wall, and it's quite rare that they hurt themselves. But the risk is is the risk is implied, isn't it? Because you look down three thousand feet, and yeah. the risk is clear, but the hazards can be managed. I guess yeah. and that's the way I feel about a lot of adventure sports. You know, the risks are obvious, but the hazards. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And in fact, the scariest thing I ever did with, with regard to heights was I was in New Zealand and I, I did the pipeline where you jump off this little bridge and you fall. I can't remember. It's a great distance. It's 100 meters or something really big. And the hardest part for me wasn't being in midair with the uh, bungee cord on my legs. The hardest part was jumping off the bridge because, you know, our ancestors never jumped off a perfectly good bridge to, to fly down a gorge. And so it's hard to push myself to do that. Um, even though I'm not particularly afraid of heights. And so, you know, you can you can feel this evolutionary pressure inside you that looking down from a great height is scary, even if you're tied on. Jumping off a perfectly good bridge is scary, even if you've got good a big, thick bungee cord on your legs. And of course, the reason that that's scary is that our ancestors couldn't do that safely. There's just literally no way that could have happened. And so for them to do these activities would have been a huge risk of life and limb. And so that's coded inside us. We're afraid of heights in under those circumstances, exact same way they were, because it was very sensible for them to be. And actually back then, you know, even a minor injury could prove fatal. Yeah. Uh, you know, a broken jaw or a tooth abscess yeah. or a broken wrist, you know, that could be the end of you back then if there's no treatment for it. It means you would you would starve and, and perish and pretty slowly at that. Is that a dog with a squeaky toy in the background? Oh yeah, I'm really sorry. That's my dog. Um, she'll tire of it in just a moment. I'm sorry. This is part of being at home. That's all right. 
So we're here, obviously, to talk about the psychology of risk-taking, and, and I love your, your talks about evolution as um, as social animals, um, from you know, from going from being solitary apes, if you like, to turning into a, a social species. And it seems we've we've spent all of these six or seven million years to try and reduce the risk of death and injury um, by multiple adaptations and strategies over all those years. But now we've got a group of people, and perhaps we include ourselves in this, who who actively pursue risk. And I just wonder how that makes sense. Can you put that in the into contemporary? thinking. Sure, sure. That's a great question. And it, it on the surface, it doesn't seem to make any sense at all that our lives just get safer and safer. Um, you know, even 50 years ago, when I was a little kid, there were no car seats, there were no seat belts. I, I was on a carpool as a small child. And the, the person driving the carpool was literally a police officer. And we went around the corner and the door flew open and I rolled out of the car across the ground. And, and it was like, not that big of a deal. He picked me up, he dusted me off, brought me home said, look, I'm, you know, I'm all scratched and my clothing is torn. And, and he says to my mom, uh, look, I'm really sorry. Billy fell out of the car when I went around the corner and I'm like, you know, five years old. And my mother's like, oh, no big deal. He looks fine. Don't worry about it. You know, it's just, <laughs> we lived in a world, even just 50 years ago, that's a lot more dangerous than it is now. But and we've gotten so much safer. You'd think that that would be an unmitigated good. But it turns out that although on the one hand, that is an unmitigated good, there's, you know, cars are so much safer, everything's safer. Um, we evolved also to seek out risk under certain circumstances. And, and the best way to understand that is that if you look at our DNA, you can track both our female ancestors and our male ancestors. And the way you track our female ancestors is by looking at our mitochondrial DNA. And that's the cell's powerhouse and that the DNA and the mitochondria are only inherited from our female ancestors. They come down from our mother's line. And then we can look at our Y-link DNA. Well, that's only inherited from our male ancestors. That comes down from our father's line. And even if you're a woman, you can look at your father's Y-link DNA. And so you can see what you can track back on both sides. And if you do that, what you find is that we have many more female ancestors than we have male ancestors. Now, that seems kind of weird, right? Because it takes two to tango. How could we have twice as many moms as we have dads, you know, grandmothers and, and great-grandmothers? And of course, when you pause and reflect on it, you realize that the answer is that some of the men were very successful and they um, conceived with lots of different women. Um, and, and therefore, some of the men were left out entirely. And so if we have twice as many moms as we have dads, we have some dads who are really in the gene pool a lot and many, many dads who never got a chance to be dads at all. And so what that does is that puts a premium on risk taking. It presses ma- males in particular to seek out risk because if it's living without um, reproducing is maybe a wonderful life for you. But from an evolutionary perspective, it's a dead end. You've not passed on your genes. You've achieved nothing. Again, that's purely, that's not a moral statement, it's an evolutionary statement. And so the men who were at risk of not being in the gene pool, the best thing that they could possibly do was take big risks to try to take an opportunity to get into the gene pool. And that's not just human males, but males across the animal kingdom. And so we see that over and over again, that males are far more likely to take big risks than females are, and they're actually often risk-seeking. They've, they've evolved to have attitudes that make them want to take risks. In my case, I'm not a very big, robust organism. I don't want to get in fights. That would probably end poorly for me every time. But I like to go really fast. I like to be up high on the rock. Those are the kinds of risks that I feel like I can do safely, I guess. And so they're appealing to me. And in principle, the reason they're part of the reason they're appealing to me is because it allows me an opportunity to get into the gene pool. 
So do you think a lot of this behaviour is the equivalent of a, a bird of paradise f- flashing his big tail feathers? Yeah. Or is it more that, uh, you know, this sort of testosterone-based machoism, for a better word, is, is still just deeply ingrained in us and we are more aggressive and more more likely to show our tail feathers than, than the female of the species? Well, it's a little bit of both. So let me tell you an example of an experiment that we conducted about 10 years ago. Um, we wanted to study risk-taking and how males use it as a strategy to attract females. I need to back up a little bit and talk about why would, why would men take risks in order to attract women. On the one hand, many women will say, but I'm, I'm not attracted to risk-taking. That's not of interest to me. And they may honestly believe that. And, and for some of them, it may even be true. But risk-taking is a strategy that males can adopt in order to attract females because it's what, it provides what we call an honest signal of male quality. So imagine that I'm at a bar and I'm trying to pick up some woman who's there. I could say, oh, you know, I graduated number one in my class at Harvard Medical School. And then maybe I did, but maybe I'm not even a doctor, right? I could just be talking. I could, it's cheap talk. I could be making that up. And so she'd be wise to not take me too seriously on that. She'd be wise to say, well, maybe. And I could talk lots of games up. But if I, if I get, take a big risk, like I'm sitting on the bar stool next to her and some huge biker guy sits down next to me and I say, hey, back off, pal. We need a little space. Um, and if he does it, she's like, wow this guy's a pretty robust organism. He's more intimidating than I thought. Or let's say that he doesn't do it. And then I kick the tar out of him. Now she's again going to be impressed. Or if he doesn't do it and he kicks the tar out of me, but when I'm, when he's done, I walk away, I brush myself off and say, ah, these things happen. Don't worry about it. Again, she should likely be impressed because I'm a pretty robust organism if I can take a thrashing from some big guy and not be bothered by it. So, and of course, if he beats the tar out of me and I'm left as a pulp on the ground, well, that's informative for her too. Now she might as well walk away, right? And so- she goes home with the bike. Yeah, exactly. And so the risk taking allows, if, if you survive it and, and achieve it, it shows that you're pretty skilled and ro- and and talented. And if you um, if you crash and burn, but hop right back up, it shows that you're robust. And so it, it's an honest signal of quality that women have evolved in order to take very seriously as an indicator of, of what they're dealing with, of somebody who provide them with good genes. So we wanted to study this, but in the laboratory, you know, you can't, you'd never get ethical permission to hurt anybody, even to the degree of falling down and skinning your elbow. It's just, it's not allowed. And so we were trying to think, My this is an, an, old, an old PhD student of mine, Richard Rone, who's now um, a professor in Amsterdam. And so we were trying to think about how could we do this? How could we study real risk-taking and, and but do it ethically? And then it finally occurred to us, I think this was his idea, why don't we go to skateboard parks? Because people are taking some pretty big risks there. And if they're a good skateboarder, when they're in midair, they can decide, you know, my balance is right or it's not. And if it's not, they can kick the board out, land on their feet and, and never hurt themselves. The risk really comes into, do I feel like my weight's in the right place? Do I feel like the board's where I want it? Can I try to land this? And so we thought we could measure the degree to which they do that. So we got ethical permission. They told us that we had to bring um, elbow pads and helmets to the skate park to offer them to people. But of course, no one ever took us up on that, not once, but we always had them there with us. And so then we, what we did is we said, can we film you 10 times doing a trick that you're working on but haven't mastered yet? In other words, it's, there's a chance they're going to fall. And they said, sure. And so we, and we offered the money, of course, to be in our experiment. So we filmed them and they, they did their trick 10 times. And then we came back a little while later and either again a guy approached them or now this attractive female that we've hired. So this model um, also with the camera says, oh, can we film you doing 10 more of those same tricks? Now, the guys always said, sure, again. And so then what we did is we filmed them again. And the key is now they've been either filmed twice by a male experimenter or once by a male as a baseline, but then the second time by an attractive female. 
And what we found was a few things. First, we took some saliva samples from them when they were done skateboarding after they encountered the second experimenter. And if she was an attractive female, their testosterone went way up in their saliva. So exactly like you were saying, it's this testosterone thing. But we've actually evolved to have an increase in testosterone when a mating opportunity presents itself. Now, it's not really a mating opportunity. She's an experimenter. She wasn't offering them their, her phone number, although many asked. But she, um, but, but nonetheless, the presence of her in our ancestral environment meant, oh, here's a possible opportunity. And then the key was the more their testosterone went up in her presence, the more they took big risks on their skateboard. And what that meant is that they didn't bail as often. They didn't kick the board out from underneath. And so they landed more, skate, they landed more tricks successfully, but they also crashed and burned more often as well. And so, you know, blooding up their knees and elbows, but these guys do that all the time. But nonetheless, that level of willingness to take that kind of risk in order to sort of impress the female, if you will, because here they are in a situation where um, there's this potential mating opportunity. And the notion is that that's the kind of thing that we evolved to do. When, when it makes sense, when there's a reason to take a risk, we ratchet it up. Now, mind you, those guys were taking risks anyway, just, for, just because it entertains them. They're already at the skateboard park. They're already falling down a fair bit. They're just willing to do that even more when there's good reason to do so. I have to say the male of the species never fails to disappoint me. We are totally transparent and predictable. <laughs> yeah. We didn't need to do a scientific experiment to prove any of that. Yeah. It is. It, it, this experiment is sort of showing the obvious, right? Um, and in fact, we were pretty confident the experiment would work because literally that study has been done 100 times in the animal kingdom. But we, nobody had done physical risk-taking in humans yet under these circumstances, so we just thought it'd be an interesting and a nice demonstration yeah. that we're the same as the, all the rest of them. Does this also speak to the fact that women are very much underrepresented in a lot of these risk-taking taking activities? Yeah, it, it does. So if you, um, I mean, if you just look at the society writ large, the single biggest demographic risk factor for um, early mortality in industrialized societies being a young male. And so young males are way more likely to commit and be on the receiving end of homicide, and they're way more likely to have accidental deaths. I mean, you can look at these memes on the internet where somebody's got a ladder leaning on a light, you know, in some elaborate thing where if he falls, you know he's going to die. And it's always a guy doing that, always. And so women do, of course, die in accidents, and they do die in homicide, but their rates are way less than men. And it's not all men, it's young men at the height of our testosterone. And so women are far less likely to be base jumpers and all these kinds of um, high-risk activities. Mind you, there's their over their, their distributions and the female distribution overlaps the male. There are lots of women who enjoy risk-taking too, but it's much more likely to be a male activity than it is a female activity. Yeah, and the women that I know involved in, in some of these sports are obviously equally adept and often um, more so. You know, it's just, uh, it's obviously an, uh, an attitude or an inherent uh, philosophy um, that... Um, Many women are not drawn to these activities. I guess. Yeah, they're less likely to be. Uh, there's, pl there's plenty of there's plenty of danger in these conversations of being politically incorrect and getting yourself into quite a lot of hot water. <laughs> Has that been an issue for you over your career? Yeah, it is. It, it certainly is. And look, the from my perspective, we want to know what the science tells us. That doesn't speak at all to the way the world ought to be. So, if males evolve to take bigger risks than females, that doesn't mean males should take bigger risks than females. It just means that that's how society. I mean, that's how our genes evolved to sort of nudge us. They don't determine what we do. They nudge us in that direction. We still exert personal control over them. It's not an excuse for any of your behavior, et cetera. And so I always try to tell my students, evolution is not an, a moral force. It's not an immoral force. It's an amoral force. It just doesn't care. 
Morality is a human invention. And so we don't need to base our moral judgments about what ought to be based on the way we evolved. We need to base them on how we'd like the world to be. But it, you're absolutely right. Despite all that, some people don't like this message because they worry that that means it's harder to get men to stop doing these things or harder to give women opportunities to do more of it. You know, some women want to go into combat. Most women don't. Just because most women don't doesn't mean you ought not give women who do an opportunity, right? And so society's changing in all these ways as we start to recognize, well, we don't need to worry about what men and women want to do on average. What we need to do when we're making a hiring decision is say, well, what do you want to do and where are your skills and proclivities? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a brilliant message. You've touched on on combat there, and it might be worth just picking up on that because I know you've done some work with the Australian military, particularly the Special Forces, and I've read a bit about the difference between professional risk takers like like soldiers, combatants, uh, emergency services workers versus enthusiast risk takers, perhaps like myself, a cave diver uh, who doesn't do this for any monetary reward. I do it for some personal satisfaction at some level. And it seems that those two populations are quite different in their attitudes to risk-taking, which I guess is, comes as no surprise. Have you read or have any thoughts about that? Yeah, so I think that they're both different and the same. And so if you look at the special forces and the activities that they engage in, they're incredibly dangerous, obviously. Lots of them, unfortunately, die in the line of duty. And um, in order to counteract that danger and to make themselves successful, they're incredibly well-prepared. They train repeatedly over and over. Those guys are super robust organisms. They are ready to do what they're doing, and they're, they've minimized all possible risk whenever they engage in an operation. And I, of course, don't know any of the details of their operations. All I know is from chatting with them, this is the kinds of things they do. Nonetheless, if you, you have to also ask yourself, well, what kind of person is attracted to go into the special forces? And what I've seen when I interact with these guys is that they actually have an incredibly high tolerance for risk because even when you're perfectly well prepared, there's still other people going to be shooting at you and that risk can't be eliminated. And so one of my favorite examples is I was out um, on site with, with the lads and we're, we're at a, on a pier and we're, we're in a new location standing over the ocean, but the pier sticks out in the ocean for boats. And I'm chatting with one of the guys and he, it's a very warm summer day. We're all in our boardies and he's climbed up on top of the tallest pylon, I guess it is, you know, the, the large logs that on which the pier stands. And so he's now probably, I'd say, 15, 20 meters above the water. And I say to him, he looks like he's about to dive. And I say to him, how deep is that water? And he goes, I don't know. And he hops off to find out. And so, you know, I think what he's basically, first of all, he's got a very high tolerance for risk because when he goes into the water, he's in the no choice condition, right? He's going to go as deep as he goes, but he's a super robust organism. So I think he also feels like I can deal with whatever comes my way. And so it would be a very imprudent decision for me to do that because if I tried to then, if it was rocky and shallow and I tried to block it with my hands, I'd probably just break my arms. Whereas he'd probably come up and all the rock would be busted to pieces and he'd be just fine. So people do calibrate their risk by virtue of what they're capable of dealing with. But I do think that these guys in general are far more risk seeking than the rest of us because despite preparing for it overwhelmingly well and doing everything they can to minimize risk, there's obviously always going to be elements of unknown. You don't know what your enemy is going to do. Hello, this is Giles English, the co-founder of Bremer Watch Company. We're proud to be supporting Dr. Harris with the show, an ambassador and a friend of the brand who symbolizes the core of Bremer with its tested beyond endurance motto. As an engineering company, we specialize in the manufacturing of beautifully made mechanical aviation watches that are built to be worn in the boardroom or at Mount Everest. With our strong military links, we work with adventurers 
all over the world. Now, to learn more, please go to bremont.com and read about the likes of NIMS has just smashed the record for climbing the 14 highest peaks in under seven months and see the watches wearing. Well, thank you for listening and hope you enjoy the show. Yeah, I've expressed a theory in my podcast that the perception of some risk takers, and the base jumper is a classic one for me, if ever you're going to think about the definition of a an adrenaline junkie, whatever that means, you would think about some someone who is a base jumper or actually a, a woman I spoke to recently, uh, a, a top fuel drag racer, you know, goes from zero to 330 mile an hour in 3.7 seconds and then it's all over, it's done. Highly risky activity but like a base jumper, the thing only lasts for, for moments, really, and there's a huge amount of preparation and thought that goes into that activity, but then, bang, it's done. And in that moment, you've got very little time to make very, very important decisions yeah. which will affect your outcome in a very, very important way. Whereas, And, and for me, that's totally different to uh, an activity like cave diving, which um, is very slow and methodical and a bit more cerebral. I think there's a lot of time to problem solve and, and enjoy the moment that you're in. And you don't have a huge squirt of adrenaline or dopamine when you jump in the water and nor do you have one when you get out of the water at the end. Um, So those two very different uh, opposite types of of risk-taking activities perhaps. But, But either way, I feel that none of these people get out of bed in the morning thinking, well, it's about a 50-50 chance I'll die doing what I do today because you could never get out of bed and and do that surely, I, I would assume. Um, and yet for me, watching the base jumper or the top fuel dragster, that's my perception, is they've got about a 50-50 chance of not making that. Yeah. Um, so, so my feeling is that all these people, and I include myself, that these people are very methodical, very careful, think an enormous amount about risk mitigation, and they come to a conclusion that what I'm about to do is actually not that dangerous because if I thought it was, I probably wouldn't do it because I don't have a death wish and I love my family. Um, what what What's your view of, of risk takers in terms of their personalities? Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that they, they like the excitement of whatever the activity is. It, it makes them feel more alive. Um, it, it it's There's this rawness to engaging in these activities that I think they really enjoy. And each day that they get up and go out to do it, they're correct. The probability that they're going to survive it is overwhelmingly high. It's almost a guarantee. But the key is it's not quite a guarantee. And so I remember when Alex Honnold did El Cap without, um, free soloed it without any ropes at all. And I, I'm not in the climbing community. I didn't, people who were tight amongst climbers knew this was going on. They knew he'd been prepping for it for a long time. I didn't. I knew he was this eminent free climber who's stunningly gifted, but I woke up in the morning, I saw the New York Times article where they reported that he had done this and then Jimmy Chu inter- interviews him at the top and it's this really lovely conversation they have. And and the part that I liked the best about that conversation was at the end of it, um, he asked him, um, He actually, I'm, I'm, I'm confusing the name of the interviewer, but anyway, at the end of it, he asked him. That's Jimmy Chin. Yeah, Chin, you're right. Jimmy Chu, Chu the was guy. the director of Crazy Rich Asians. Oh, all right, all right, that's right, yeah. Yeah, and so anyway, he, um, he asked him, what are you going to do next? And Honnold says, well, I'm interested in start sport climbing and trying to do some of the hardest routes. In other words, I'm going to put ropes back on and I'm not going to be trying to free climb because I've now this is the pinnacle of, of free climbing achievement. And it was like this enormous relief to me because although he's so gifted and he prepares so well, he knows that every single move he's going to do up that entire climb, thousands of feet, eventually you're going to make a mistake and eventually you're going to fall. And so 
I just, I felt this sense of relief. Oh, good, because I like this guy. I admire him. And now he's going to stop doing this. And so the odds are, you know, it's sort of like if you gamble enough, the house eventually wins, no matter how good of a gambler you are. You may win one bet, but you can't win every bet, right? The odds are stacked in the house's favor. And in this case, the longer you free climb, the more likely you are to end up dead. The longer you ice climb, the longer you do any of these things. And so it just, for me, I realized the sense of relief that that he wasn't going to do it forever because eventually the chance are good that those odds are going to catch up with you. And that's, I think that's what allows them to go out every day because they know the odds probably aren't going to catch up with them that day. But it, it it's very nerve wracking from the perspective of those of us who are watching them because we know, well, eventually this isn't going to work out so well for them. And particularly, I suppose, when uh, heights and a vertical wall like that would be a significant fear for me and perhaps for Alex, uh, the thought of diving through a silted-out underwater cave would be uh, equally frightening for him. Who, who knows? When I spoke to Sean Tumor, uh, the base jumper that I interviewed, who has done more successful, well, obviously, more successful jumps than any other base jumper in the world, over 6,700 now and probably more like 7,000 now, and he said he he's actually lost... Uh, count or he can't remember the names of all the people that have died you know along the way that he's known and so I said to him well what the obvious question is why are you still alive and I, I think his response was that he knows when to walk away and he knows when he doesn't feel right or the conditions are not perfect and I think he's become extremely attuned to both his personal uh, milieu if you like and and the ambient environment so um, but there is still that sense that well if you do it enough surely one day something's not going to work um, you know an equipment fault even something outside your control that's right there's always an element of luck and if you if you ask the world's richest people how did you make a billion dollars they'll always say well I knew when it was a good opportunity I knew when it wasn't I walked away from the poor ones I took the good ones and they're right but they forget there's an el- always an element of luck and the same holds for people taking these enormous risks. And so when I was, um, when I was at, at university, one of my good friends was uh, one of America's top climbers. And he was one of the strongest individuals I'd ever met. He could do one-arm pull-ups on a rope. Um, and just, and he, could, he could pull himself up laterally on his fingertips and then do pull-ups with his body flat to the earth. It's just crazy the things he could do. Um, but he was free climbing in the Alps after we graduated and he fell and died. Fell and died. And I have no doubt that there was just something bad luck there because he knew exactly what his capabilities are. He was way better climber than I'll ever be. He knew exactly what he was doing, but that doesn't mean things can't go wrong. I mean, for all I know, a wasp stung him on the eyeball and he re- he flinched and that was the, you know, we don't know. And so eventually even the world's best, who's got a re- knowing when to walk away is hugely important. It may be the most important, but even that sometimes it's, you sh- it's the right day to go. But as you point out, it's the wrong equipment. The breeze changes halfway down. Who knows, right? Yeah, and this guy is, um, you know, he admits himself he's had a couple of lucky breaks. You know, he, he flew backwards into a cliff and didn't get hung up on the cliff. He just bounced off and the thing spun around in the right direction. Wow. So, you know, you take your breaks where you yeah. go, I guess. Yeah. It's true about knowing people who you think are perhaps better qualified or more competent than you and then seeing them die. Uh, that That's happened to me. And that certainly shakes you and makes you realize that, well, if that can happen to that person, then I really do need to take extra care and, and be very vigilant uh, with my preparation and, and so Yeah, forth. and I would agree with that 100%. But I would also say that, um, you know, you can also, the, the probability of, of getting cancer and all those other things that can kill us in the world, heart disease, et cetera, if you're a thoughtful risk taker, the, the probability you're not probably adding much to the 
to your likelihood of dying, right? And because all those things can kill you too. And so I'm definitely not a believer in sitting carefully in your chair all day, every day to make sure that nothing bad goes wrong because it just can't be controlled in the world, right? If we think we're controlling it, we're really just fooling ourselves. We don't know what's around the corner for any of us. I mean, this pandemic that we're currently in is a really good example of that. And so I think that if calculated risk-taking makes perfect sense to me. And I, I remember I always, I love to drive fast in cars and I'd always dreamed of driving on the Autobahn. And um, I, was, I was doing a sabbatical with Robert Trivers in Berlin and we were invited down to Leipzig uh, for some talks. And so I thought, well, this is the perfect chance. And so we rented this superpowered car and we drove us down the Autobahn. And what was funny about it was it was so much fun. I found that I was, we we're driving 250 kph down the Autobahn. And I found that this was the greatest thing and I really enjoyed it. But on the way home, it was nighttime and it was raining. And so I just wasn't willing to drive that fast. And so I slowed the car down to about 160 and cars were passing us like we were parked. And so at night in the rain, and we're driving 160 kph. And so it was, it was eye-opening to me that I, I feel like I like to drive fast. I have an appetite for this kind of risk, but it, probably people who do it a lot more than I do, because they live there, they know exactly what their car is capable of. They know exactly what they're capable of, and they're willing to push the envelope a lot more. And, and as I watched them go by, I was intimidated by it. Well, that's a bit like your snow skiing versus your snowboarding, yeah. I guess. If you'd spent another 20 years on the snowboard, you would have been uh, back to 250 again. <laughs> Perhaps yeah. so. Oh, well, that's interesting. We touch on, you know, there are, there are so many other things that can kill you and, and perhaps risk-taking adventure, uh, activities don't add a great deal to that to that risk. In fact, overall, the benefits might be that your all-cause mortality might be lowered if you keep yourself fit because you're yeah. a rock climber and... Uh, so there's obviously benefits there, and there's probably benefits in terms of your mental health. Although it seems that in in risk taking, there can be some downsides to it as well. I've read a few articles. There's a, a nice study of base jumpers that was done in New Zealand. These are psychology studies, and I don't pretend to completely understand them, but I can read the conclusions and and uh, take some stuff away. And there's another guy in uh, the states, a guy called. Bill Oygarden, who's a PhD, also a very long-time cave diver, who's looked at personality types in cave divers and found some of those cave divers uh, really do suffer from a form of addiction to their sport and it can be quite destructive in terms of their social interactions, their family, you know, really suffers because of it. Have you seen that as a part of, you know, this risk-taking behavior? Yeah, one of the costs of of if you – if you become, as you said, sort of like a, an adrenaline junkie, if the, one of the costs of these activities is that if you find something, imagine that it's base jumping or um, it could be any, whatever your activity is, it, a lot of times people feel that makes them happier, but then by comparison, the rest of their life isn't as pleasant. And so you do see this reported a lot whereby I love my activity, but then I find that this time spaces between that activity less enjoyable, less you know, I feel less alive, et cetera. And so it can lead you down this kind of unpleasant spiral in a way very similar to what drugs do, right? So the first time that you smoke crack cocaine, I haven't tried it, of course, but one presumes that you get this huge positive high out of it. But we know from people who are addicted to it that they barely get a high anymore. All it does is hold away the low. And I think that risk-taking can have that addictive quality for some people, not for everybody, whereby that excitement of being on the rock or in or or base jumping or whatever, going really, really fast, makes them feel really alive. And then by comparison, everything else, they feel dull and, and half alive, where they wouldn't have felt that way before. And I'm not enough of an adrenaline junkie by any means to have that problem, but I'm sensitive to it. And I know that if I have this amazing day, um, 
climbing or skiing, just like everything's perfect and it's really, really great. The rest of the day or the next day feels sort of blah by comparison. It's hard not to. Yeah, and those there's those periods of time in between, and uh, I'll, I'll obviously keep reflecting on cave diving, my particular yeah, activity. But I'm I'm lucky that cave diving is such an equi- equipment intensive sport. I can fill the weeks in between <laughs> a weekend away with tinkering in my shed and playing with equipment and building equipment and talking to other cave divers. And one of the the good things about the sport is that you become part of this community and other communities may become less attractive to you. And I've I've read a bit about this, particularly in Bill's work. The downside to that, of course, is that, again, it puts pressure on your your marriage and your family because suddenly you only want to be thinking and talking about cave diving and hanging out with cave divers and the family can be the losers in that. And I've had to be very conscious and careful of that, I have to say. But I've um, seen a lot of what we jokingly called the aquatic industry divorce syndrome, <laughs> uh, which um, ha- has cost a lot of people their relationships. And I th- yeah. it seems to be a theme throughout these activities. I, I do think so. And I think that, that you're in a lucky position where you have this very engaging day job, right? Um, I think if you had a day job that you hated, maybe you're pushing a mop or a broom or you have a really unpleasant boss or whatever the case might be, that it would be hard not to spend your whole life wanting to be elsewhere. And if you're privileged like you are to have this really engaging day job that takes all your time and attention while you're doing it, and then when you're done, you can now turn your time and attention to something like cave diving. And then, of course, if you have a family that that you're close with, it, it, it then balances the whole thing out nicely. But it's very easy to become unbalanced if you don't have those relationships that are really good for you or if you don't have the kind of day job that's really good for you that that provides the offsetting you know, between when you're engaged in these activities, because you're right, it's, I love the climbing community. They're really friendly folks. They share the same interests. Um, they're great to talk to because they, they're the only ones who care, who want to hear the stories and who want to tell you their stories. And so um, it's very tempting to, to disappear into that world. And, and there's nothing wrong with that if that's what you, if that's the point in your life where you're at. But of course, eventually your life needs to be more balanced. Can we talk a little bit about risk-taking and young people? Um, and this may be outside your, your expertise, but I'm sure you've got more knowledge about it than I have. But um, in, as, as part of my role as Australian of the Year uh, last year, I decided that I wanted to encourage young people back out into the outdoors. And to, I, in some ways, I was probably talking more to the parents, I'm sure, than, than the kids. You know, this, uh, the terms helicopter parenting and cotton wool kids and, and so forth has been something that I've thought a lot about. And particularly in the day and age of, of screen time and uh, excessive screen time and living in these virtual worlds where they're on their computers, uh, you know, shooting at their friends and, and so forth, but not actually getting outside to, to test themselves. Do you think that is a, a genuine phenomenon that children are somehow changing in just really in the last less than 20 years, I think, since smartphones and, and the internet became a, a thing like it is now? Is, is this an issue? I do think it's an issue. It's, it's again, it's, it's like the topic we were just talking about. Balance is the key. And so there's some enormous pluses from these electronic forms of entertainment. If you think when you and I were kids, we could play games like Monopoly, which are literally as tedious as blazes, right? You go around and around a board. That's pure luck. There's no strategizing. And the games that you can play on these devices are enormously complex. Sometimes the rules aren't even clear. They literally make you smarter to play them as you're trying to figure things out. And so I think that's an enormous plus. I also think it's an enormous plus that you can play those games with your friends, even if they're not in your home. 
And so my son will get online and play some FIFA game with his friends in different um, at, when they're all in their own bedroom at home, or even a lot of his friends live overseas. And so we can connect with them and they're all literally playing a game together, maybe against another team or against each other, whatever. That's a huge plus. But it's like anything else. You can't let that over consume your life. We evolved to be out there in the natural world. Even just living in cities is a little bit exhausting for us. It kind of wears out the frontal lobes of our brain. And so the literature shows that nature is restorative. Getting out there and even just a park in the city, but particularly getting out there in real raw nature. And it's good for you. It makes you realize how our ancestors lived. It's a fascinating environment. And so um, I know some people hate to camp and they hate to hike, and that's fine. It's not for everybody. But by and large, it's a good thing to at least experience nature whenever possible. And of course, as you were saying, to physically get out there in the world and not just play FIFA where you're using your thumbs, but to be kicking a ball around with your friends. And so if you do this in a balanced way, I think that the those amazing games that now exist electronically that didn't used to exist are just an unmitigated plus, but they quickly turn into a problem if that's all you're doing. If you're never leaving that little cave that you live in and you're just on the internet all the time. And it's a danger for parents because the, the electronic babysitter is a very alluring yeah. thing. You know, it, uh, the kids are out of sight and out of mind and you can get on with yeah. what you want to do rather than having to be directly involved by taking them down to the park or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, the other thing that has struck me is that there seems to have, and I, this might be changing now, but there seems to have recently been a move in schools, primary schools especially, whereby kids have to, it's kind of a communist approach to education where the kids all kind of have to be the same and no one can be a winner and no one can be a loser, especially in the sports field. And that has really worried me. And I think about it a lot that, you know, I remember at school, I was not athletic. I was not coordinated. I was the guy who was standing there with the last two guys who were the computer guys, even though I wanted to be one of the athletes. But when they were choosing the teams and, you know, the two cool kids got to be the captains and they chose their mates and then they chose the others and then they chose the guys who were going to really make them come last. You know, I'd be one of those guys, even though I was kind of big and robust and outdoorsy, I was just no good at the sports and they worked that out pretty quickly. But, you know, that that can be destructive, of course, and it wasn't pleasant at the time, but I think it's really helped me, you know, see that you don't have to be good at everything and you find things that you are good at and you pursue those. If we don't have winners and losers at that age, if you don't get to get a gold medal for coming first and get nothing if you come second, is that does that erode our our confidence in long term or or is it destructive, do you think? Look, it is a problem on the one hand. And so the my colleague Roy Baumeister was one who first showed that we all think that these things A improve self-esteem and B that that having a high self-esteem is a good thing. And it turns out that having a high self-esteem is only a good thing for the owner of that self-esteem. It makes them a little bit happier. It actually doesn't have any benefits to anyone else in the world. And in fact, sometimes it can have costs because a lot of the people who misbehave the most are the most entitled. So um, domestic abusers and, and psychopaths and things often think, well, I'm just better than everybody else. It's okay that I take what I want rather than asking. Um, that's issue one. Issue two is that despite the best efforts of these silly things where everybody's a medal and everybody gets a winner, kids are still pretty good at knowing, well, actually, I scored all the goals and you, my friend, literally were in my way the whole time. And everybody knows that. And so um, I I think it's silly that we tried so hard to protect kids' feelings in these ways because 
What the literature also shows is that a little bit of adversity in life is a good thing. It's the title of a very famous book, The Blessing of a Skin Knee, but it's also the results of lots of psychological research that if you've had no adversity in your life whatsoever, then you, the, when you hit a little bump in the road, which everybody hits, you go kaflooey. Where if you've had tons of adversity, that's not so good either usually because you're a little bit beaten down. But if you have had a kind of moderate level of adversity, if you know, I too was often chosen last, I'm tiny. And so they didn't want me on any kind of sport that required size or speed. And so that's how you learn. Well, these are, you know, I'm not going to play for the NBA, but maybe I will have a shot at doing these other kinds of sports that don't require um, power and size. And so you, people need to know about themselves. They need to understand that. And and even though it, it's a little bit unpleasant when it happens, we, we grow from that experience. And so I think that these everybody gets a medal, that nobody is the winner, though. All those are just silliness. If, if it works right, if, if they convince people of that fact, that's a problem because the, it, you never get that learning experience. And often kids see through it anyway. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say all those things because I've been kind of shouting them from the rooftops in the last year or so without any degree in psychology and only my life experience and, and you know, uh, the beauty of being the Australian of the year is you're allowed to have an opinion and people have to listen for 12 months. But um, yeah, in the background, I'm thinking there might be a lot of professionals like you sh yourselves shaking their heads. No, no, you're on target. Got away with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, the the cliched expression, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is by and large, there's a, a lot of truth to that. Yeah. Um, of course, it, you know, it can become terrible for people who live constantly in a state, and, state of heightened arousal, having to protect themselves, whether they're in an abusive relationship or um, as a child in a house, which is, you know, a monstrous place to live. Of course, that's that terribly destructive to their psyche, yep. I'm sure. And, and to their brain development and everything. We know it, when it's overwhelming, it's a huge problem. But at the average level that we have, that we're blessed to experience in these industrialized democracies in which we live, a little bit of adversity is a good thing. Yeah. And doing hard things, as you say, I think really does prepare you for the inevitable, genuine hardships in life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, sometimes at a bad day of work, I think to myself, well, you know, you could sit in a uh, underwater cave for 16 hours doing decompression, shivering and, and being miserable and, um, you know, doing doing hard things like that actually puts you in a place which makes you better able to cope with day-to-day -day adversity. And, it does. Uh, and so I think it's good for you. I also think that if, you know, the experiences that you had, the adversity experience that you had, allow you to succeed in the things that you do. And especially when you face enormous challenges, like in your case, the, getting those boys out of the cave is a perfect example if you had never experienced any adversity in life, you wouldn't be prepared. You wouldn't know what to do in the, that circumstance. But by having gone through it yourself, by having seen lots of other examples of these kinds of things, both at work and in your activity, you're much, much better prepared to say, well, here's what, here's what needs to be done in order to help us out of the circumstance. And we know that happens all the time in helping. Human beings are often not very helpful, but it turns out that they're not being unhelpful because they don't want to be helpful. It's because they don't know how. And you know, when they do try to help, they often make things worse. And and the more you've led this protected existence, the more you're just at a loss when things actually go wrong. You're listening to Real Risk, the adventure podcast with Richard Harris. I'm glad you, you mentioned the social aspects of the Thai Cave Rescue because one thing that came out of that in terms of the way the community responded so favourably to the, the rescue was that everyone commented on the incredible cooperation between so many different 
countries and communities during that rescue. And, you know, the message was clear. Why can't we be like that all the time? Why do we have to fight and hate the rest of our lives? But when something special happens, like a bunch of kids being the, the problem and they're stuck, the whole world gathered around. You know, it didn't matter what religion, what country, everyone was on board for that rescue, it seemed. Um, it's kind of a, a sad indictment in a way of the rest of our lives. Yeah, it is and it isn't. I mean, on the one hand, I totally agree. It'd be, it'd be lovely if we could do that all the time. The problem is that we didn't evolve to do that. We evolved to be jockeying for status all the time. We evolved for intergroup relations to often be rocky because other groups were threats to us. But I actually think that what those are really nice examples about what's best about human nature is when things go wrong and we all come together to help. And and that that was a perfect example of that cave rescue, but even just the floods in Brisbane that happened in, I think, 2011. And you've got everybody in the whole town, literally after the floods and there's a mess everywhere, they just show up and they line up in the hot sun um, to, to be sent somewhere to do a disgustingly dirty job and help clean out somebody's home. It's just human nature to try to help people in our community when things go wrong. And so it's, sort of too bad that things have to go wrong to bring out the best of us but it's really nice that the best of us is there waiting to come out when things do go wrong yeah that's very true i was hoping the current pandemic might be another thai cave rescue in terms of bringing the world together but i think maybe it's going on too long and people can't sustain such niceness for yeah for it's a period of time it's a dual combination one it's too long and it's asking too much of us and two because other people are now a threat to us. I don't know if you've got the illness or not. We evolved this psychology of illness, whereby when somebody looks like they might have something or we believe they have something, we distance ourselves from them. We feel this almost a sense of disgust toward them. There's a, you know, in a pre-medical society, which was 99.9% of our existence, the only way to stay safe from germs was to stay away from them. So we've evolved to find vomit disgusting, open wounds disgusting, um, disfigured, individuals disgusting because all those are signs of disease we've we've tried to learn to overcome that but still deep down inside us that psychology is there and so if i go out into my community and i know everybody else might be infected i have this wariness about them it's hard to come together as a group yeah i'm thinking about it even more on the international uh, level you know we've got all this talk of vaccines for example being developed in different countries and suddenly it, there seems to be a rivalry like are the russians stealing the british <laughs> recipe i heard the other day or you know is america going to share their vaccine when when it comes out i mean this is is beyond me why we wouldn't all be having a representative from each country at the national vaccine committee or something you know to to all share exactly where we're up to yeah there's there's a lot of unfortunate rivalry and in some ways rivalry is good every country is trying their hardest to get there first which can only serve common humanity for the best And in the end, when a country, when somebody gets it, or if a couple different labs get something at the same time that are equally effective, I think what you're going to see is everybody rallying together to get them out as quickly as possible. And in the end, it'll be unfortunate that people with more money are going to get it before people with less money. That's inevitable. But the hope is that that's a very brief duration in time and that very quickly governments start to buy them in mass so that they can really just distribute it to everybody. That's my hope. And I do believe that will come to pass. It's an empirical question at this point, but I think that's where we're headed. Going back to um, when risk-taking goes bad and and people do have fatal accidents, for example, I've I've noticed this, again, with respect to cave diving, I've noticed a phenomenon on the internet forums which, um, which follow a fatality in our sport. And that is a very sort of impassioned call for answers from other people who follow the forums. And they're often 
actually verging on being quite aggressive and insensitive to the family or friends uh, of the the dead diver who might have been involved in the in the incident. They sort of demand to know exactly what happened. And I wonder if this is a, a self-defence mechanism because I've seen it time and time again. You know, I think that we want to know exactly why this happens so that we can then say, well, oh, good, yes, I wouldn't have done that or that couldn't happen to me because I don't use that kind of equipment or or something like that. Have you, have you seen that in other fields of endeavour or other sports? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good case in point. Um, and, and I think you've hit the nail on the head on exactly what's going on is that we – particularly for risk-taking, we seek to have control over our environment so that we can mitigate those risks and minimize them. And so the upshot is, if I can find what you did wrong when you went cave diving that led to your death, then I can say, oh, now I've learned, don't do that, because maybe something I didn't know. Oh, he only his regulator was set this way, and I always set mine that way, but now I'll know not to do that. So it may be a mistake that I'm actively making, and now I'll correct it, which is obviously super important, right, that I learn from your experience. You know, humans' storytelling is one of the most important abilities that we have because we are allowed to learn from the experiences of others. I, you can go cave diving, you can risk your life, you can barely survive it. And now when I go, I'm perfectly safe because I take the lessons that you barely survived to learn and I can apply them without any cost at all. So that's super important. But then the second side of it is you often end up with this kind of what you might even call victim blaming, where you say, oh, well, he wasn't skilled enough, he was clumsy enough, or even worse in cases like where she is attacked in a bar, well, I won't dress like that. I won't go to that bar because it gives you a sense of control and therefore you can say it won't happen to me. So an unfortunate consequence of this very sensible process is that we look to find something that the victim of this unfortunate circumstance did wrong or was wrong in their situation so that we can avoid it. And that makes sense, right? We ought to be doing that. But it, but as you point out, it can go to a point that's really quite unpleasant where somebody's privacy is violated, where it's very hard on their family, where people start saying what, what can sound like very snarky things about the person who suffered the unfortunate consequences, simply because what they're trying to do is reassure themselves and others, oh, here's a mistake, I've identified it, I won't make that myself, you don't make that and we'll all be fine. I want to finish up but just by touching on the genetics of risk-taking. And I know you mentioned that this is not your, your area of expertise, mm-hmm. but there's there's been some talk in some of the diving literature that I've read about a gene called DRD4, which is, um, I, for what I've read, it was actually linked to financial risk-taking initially. Uh, and people are, seem to be extrapolating it to adventure sports or other risk-taking behaviours. And it uh, it's attached to a dopamine receptor, and I gather dopamine is that sort of feel-good neurotransmitter which you you release when uh, something rewarding or pleasant is is happening and maybe including with some drug-taking behaviours as well. Mm-hmm. And it becomes perhaps a little bit addictive in its, own, in its own right. Are we far along in our knowledge of the genetics of, of this sort of stuff to actually say there might be a gene which, which you can say that you've probably got that gene if you participate in that kind of behaviour? Um, I guess my answer to that question, without knowing much about the specific genetics of risk-taking, my answer to that question would be um, by saying that it's turned out to be the case that most candidate gene studies end up being very hard to replicate. So you take a particular gene that we know from knockout studies with mice or something like that plays a really important role. We investigate it in humans and we find, lo and behold, if you've got one version, one allele, one version of that gene, you show this behavior or you're more likely to than if you have the other. And then when somebody tries to run that again, they find they can't get the effect. And so most geneticists have given up on these single gene approaches 
in favor of what we call a polygenic approach. And what the polygenic approach has come to realize, and there's a really lovely book, if you're interested, by Robert Plowman called Blueprint, in which he lays out, he's one of the grandfathers, so to speak. I don't, he probably wouldn't be pleased for me to call him a grandfather, but he's one of the really important early figures of working through a lot of these data and starting to understand this. And as Plowman put it, when we started, we thought that there would be a couple of gold nuggets out there, a couple of 623 genes that play a big role in risk-taking or intelligence or you choose it, whatever the trait might be. And what we came to realize is that there's just not. There's exceptions where there is, but most of the time there's not. Instead, it's gold dust. What you've got is literally thousands of genes that each play a very minor role in the behavior of interest. And so we've shifted from these candidate gene approaches, which there could be lots of studies showing even that the one that you mentioned works, and it may, it might even be one of the rare cases where it does account for some significant variance. But in all probability, what you end up doing instead is you create what's called a polygenic score, which would be using literally maybe the entire genome or maybe just a huge fraction of it and saying, here are all the genes that play a role. Each one of them might only account for one one thousandth of a percent of whether you engage in that behavior or not. But when you add them all up in combination, they account for a large part of the story. So when you do that work, what you find is that most of these kind of complex traits like risk-taking are about 50% genetic. They, um, about 50% of the variability in whether you engage in that behavior is something that has to do with the genes that you've inherited. And of course, the other 50% is something about your environment that causes you to enjoy it or, or whatever the case might be. So I wouldn't pin too much hope on any one particular gene because the literature has shown very clearly that in the end, those tend not to pan out. Even, even when they do play a role, they usually don't play as big of a role as we think. But rather, what I would say is that nonetheless, genetics themselves play a very important role. And so, you know, if you had an identical twin, um, the chances are very good that person would enjoy cave diving as well or something else that involves the same kind of risk activities. It might not be that same exact sport. And so there is a strong genetic tendency toward avoiding risk or seeking risk. But on top of that, Strong is typically about 50%. There's a lot of personal agency and choice involved. You know, I, I need to look out for my family. I'm not going to do these things even though I enjoy them. Or, boy, I, I've had some really bad experiences in life. I don't want to do that ever again. You know, the environment and our upbringing and our agency, all those things matter a lot as well. Well, Bill, that's a fascinating insight, and I could uh, definitely talk for another hour, but I'm conscious I don't want to completely destroy your Saturday morning. So thank you very much. I feel like uh, the message for me is that we can't ignore where we've come from in all of this, 7 million years to to bring us to uh, this point, to enjoy our outdoor pursuits or our work uh, and the risks that that might involve. There's nature and nurture are, are still at work, and uh, we cannot use the genetics as an excuse for poor behaviour, but um, it may be perhaps pushing us towards some of yeah. these exciting opportunities that we have in life and uh, the rest of it is still well within our control. So, yeah. uh, Agreed 100%, Harry. Yeah. Amazing insight. There you go. Can I have my psychology degree now? <laughs> it's all yours. You've earned it. <laughs> no, that's wonderful. So thanks very much again for your generous, uh, uh, generously giving us your time there, Bill. Thank you. My pleasure. Lovely to talk to you. That's it for this episode of Real Risk. If you're a risk taker or know someone who'd be good for the show, please send me an email on admin at speleopix.com.au. I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Subscribe, give me a rating, but most importantly, join me for the next one. We'll see you again on Real Risk. Real Risk.